Um, we kind of did this last night, now we're going to study about it. Jeremiah uh, uh, came back in 445. This 13 years after Ezra 7 through 10, and what, nearly 90 years after Ezra 1 through 6. And there was the situation, as you figured out last night, you didn't already know. They had rebuilt the temple and all that, but not the walls around Jerusalem. Well, they started to rebuild the walls. That's Ezra 4. We may say another word about that in a minute. But in Ezra 4, they encountered opposition, and they stopped, and actually the opposition apparently had torn down some of the work they had done during Ezra 4. So you've still got the temple in an unwalled city. Now, what's the problem with having an unwalled city? Unprotected, yeah, exactly. So the enemy wants to come in, they do. You know, we don't think much about walls around cities. Now we got good reasons why we don't think much about walls around cities. What are our good reasons? Airplanes, uh, cannons, you know, some other things that make walls not very practical. You know, but walls are quite practical in the ancient world when they didn't have those things. You get a good wall around your city, thick, tall, strong, sturdy, and a real fine gatekeeper, and uh, they're not going to get in. And uh, But if you leave the place where God lives unprotected, that's a shame. That just really shows that you're not that concerned about uh, the place where, where the Lord dwells. And uh, it certainly uh, leaves your capital city vulnerable to enemy attack in fact. Who wants to live in a walled city that have hardly anybody living in Jerusalem? You know, because it's, it's uh, you know, a city target for any invading army that wants to come through and, and, and do whatever they want to do. Uh, I know in Brazil, they, Brazilians see pictures in the U.S., they, they always remark about this. In Brazil, a good house has a wall around it. Keep the things there. And uh, sometimes the wall around it would like bits of glass sticking up out of the wall, you know, to where you can't just climb over. I mean, they're tall, too. And they, they look at pictures about, like, where's your wall around the house? You know, it seems weird to them. Now, there are houses without walls around them. But those are generally cheap, you know, kind of shacks and, and shanties and things like that, that the people didn't have, uh, couldn't afford to have them protected, probably don't have anything in them that you could take anywhere. You got a good house. You don't want a wall around. You got a good city. You don't want a wall. And uh, so that's the situation. Any comments or questions about that introduction? <coughs> yes, Joe. Just think about what the temple actually had inside all these gold and silver objects at the time, places to attack. Good point. Excellent. Other thoughts? Yes. Um, this is. I don't really agree with this, but I've read the uh, the saying that uh, sometimes people think that. Uh, same person wrote the Nehemiah. Is that true? I don't know if you wrote that Nehemiah, but I do know that in both books there's a lot of first person. So if if that's a key, it might be more logical to think of Ezra writing Ezra and Nehemiah writing Nehemiah. I think that's the most logical thing. Not that another author couldn't have compiled some autobiographical accounts, but I'd say to assume Ezra wrote Ezra and Nehemiah and Nehemiah would be Okay. Alright, one to three. 
Caleb in the twelfth year, as I was in Shushan, the palace, that Hananiah, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men out of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, and that were left in captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity therein, and the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Now, in the very end of chapter 1, you learn that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, meaning he had a high position. In Persian government, he's probably well supported. You really wouldn't want your cupbearer to be vulnerable to a bribe. And uh, so he's in a comfortable situation, we assume. And yet when his brothers come to Jerusalem, what does he do? What does he do? He asks them, how are my brethren back in Jerusalem? Why does he care? It's interesting that he took initiative. He wanted to know how they were doing. He has real concern for the work of the Lord, not just for his friends who live in uh, wherever, Susa, but for his brethren that live hundreds of miles away in Jerusalem. We need more global concern for the work of God. And what do they tell him about Jerusalem? Yeah, it's in bad shape because of the wall being broken down, the gates being burned with fire, and all of that. That's probably, as I said, the follow-up of Ezra chapter 4, verses 7 to 23, that flash forward we had in Ezra. Comments and questions? Okay, 4 to 11. Let's see how Nehemiah responds. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you keep your covenant mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, as the sins of the children of Israel, which have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances in which you commanded your servant Moses. I remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are faithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out from the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there in the great and place which I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Now these are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who desire to hear your name and let your servant prosper this day. I pray and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So what did Nehemiah do when he hears this bad report about Jerusalem? <clears throat> he prayed and he wept and mourned. Do, do real men cry? You know, I mean, he's really upset. No, it's not his problem. You know, I'm back there in Jerusalem. But he's deeply grieved and concerned about that problem. Shows a real spiritual interest. Shows a willingness to care about situations that maybe he's not directly involved with. That he wouldn't even have to think about again. But he really cares. He's not a prophet. He's not a priest. He's not a king. But he wants to see the situation change. He's willing to get involved. And so he prays. And uh, how much does he pray? Many days. 
And what does he pray? That reminds God he prays based upon the promises God has made if they return back to him. That's an excellent way to pray because you know you're praying within the will of God if you base it on the promises God has made. What else does he do in this prayer? He kind of considers himself like a simple party. Yes! Isn't that impressive? You know, he confesses the sins not just their sins, but our sins. I and my father says, we've acted very corruptly. There is so much in the Bible of confessing sins and not just blaming everybody else, but recognizing our personal share in the sins of God's people. We, we confession, as we said the other day, is way too neglected in our prayer life. We show that we're not really upset about hurting God if we're not confessing our sins with grief and intensity. What else does he do in this prayer? Yes, very much so. Your servant, your people, eight times. God's the one to be honored, not him. Good point. What else does he do in this prayer? Yes, that he would listen to your prayers. Yes. It's, it's very good to ask God to hear us. Sometimes we take that for granted as if he's just supposed to do that. It is a blessing God gives us to hear us. What else do you do in this prayer? Praises God. Praises God. What else do you do in the prayer? Yes, your success. Yes. He asks in verse 11 that God would make him successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Who's this man? The king, King Artaxerxes. <clears throat> That's interesting that he would ask God to give him success before Artaxerxes. He believes that God is the ruler of all history, including the ruler of the great Persian monarch Artaxerxes. And God had blessed him with a position of strategic influence. He is the cupbearer to the king. That means that he's got some opportunity to, to maybe make requests to the king that other people would not have. In a sense, God in his providence has already begun to act on Israel's behalf. He's put Nehemiah in a position where Nehemiah uh, can, can ask the king. But he's praying earnestly. If you look at the comparison with chapter 2, he's been praying not day for four months. Asking God to grant him success. He insists with God in prayer. Sometimes we just don't pray We just not. We don't we don't trust the Lord in prayer. You know, we pray half-heartedly once or twice and we let it go at that. He didn't. He needs God's help and he's earnestly beseeching God over and over again over a period of four months. Comments and questions on chapter one. How can it really means that me and I doesn't say and give God a solution to the problem? It all up in his hand. I think too many times we pray and we think, oh well, I think this is the best idea. I'll, I'll, God will make this happen. But he just reminds him of the promise and it doesn't happen. Good point. Yes. I like that too. Other thoughts? By the way, you guys have been excellent at this, but it's getting later in the week and it is warm in here. If anybody can sleep and wants to stand, you're welcome to do so. Just kind of go somewhere where you're not blocking somebody's view. You're welcome to stand up so that you can feel or pay attention to what has to do that. All right.
chapter 2, let's see what happens. There's a pretty tense situation, uh, what we're starting to read here in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. And it came about a month from Esau, the twentieth year of King Isaac's death, while it was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king, and I had not been sad in his presence. The king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tomb, is lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? And the king said to me, What would you request? Request. So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, If it please the king, and your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tomb, so that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, The queen sitting beside him, How long will you be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it pleased the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, I mean, they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. Judah. And he letters to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timbers to make beams for the king's fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will build. And the king granted them to me because the good hand of God, of my God, was upon me. Alright, so, Nehemiah then is serving the wine for the king. By the way, the cupbearer, what's the real reason why the king would want a cupbearer? Yes, they could protect the uh, security of the food. Perhaps even Nehemiah will taste the, the wine, eat the food ahead of time, make sure nobody's poisoned it, you know, they have, he's the one that's killed, not the king. You would want a very trustworthy servant, somebody you could really count on. Uh, not to accept a bribe to poison this or whatever. And so he's in serving wine to the king, and, and, and how does he look? And the king notices it. That's dangerous. You're not supposed to look sad in the presence of the king. You're always supposed to be happy before him. And so the king says, I can tell you're sad. You're not sick. You're sad. And, uh, well... Nehemiah explains that sadness. How? Why not? When all these horrible things are coming about. Yes, my city, the place of my father's tombs, is desolate. The gates have been consumed by fire. The king said, well, what, what do you want? And what does Nehemiah do next? Praise. I take it that he did not drop down on his knees and spend 30 minutes praying to God uh, after the king asked him that, before he answered the king's question. I'm assuming this is sort of... Uh, please, please let the king be favorable to me. You know, we need more constant sense of God's presence. One of my struggles is it's easier for me to take some time out and pray than it is to constantly be talking to God throughout the day. What you see in a man like Nehemiah is he had this constant awareness of God being there and constantly turning and talking to him. You see Nehemiah doing that all through the book. That's going to be one of the values of this book. Have you ever been in the middle of a conversation 
and, and the person says something, and you mentally pray a one-sentence prayer to God before you respond. That's when you really see and are sensing you need for God. So he prays to God, and he answers the king and says, listen, can I go back to you to, to rebuild the walls of that city? And what does the king say? Yes, and how long will it take you and when will you come back? And Nehemiah tells him. He, Nehemiah had already thought this thing through. He already knew what he wanted, how long it would take. And he also tells the king what? <clears throat> I, there's some things I need from you. Two things. Second one's longer. What's the first thing? Letter granting safe passage. You know, the ability to go through various lands that are under Persian dominion. And then a letter of requisition to the king's forester for timber for the gates, the walls, and his own residence. Now, I'm really impressed by this. I think Nehemiah illustrates something we sometimes struggle with. Nehemiah has thought this through and planned it out. He has thought about what he's going to need. And he's asking for what he needs. He doesn't just trust God in the sense of, well, I've been praying to God, um, maybe God will send some timber down my way. He has planned out what he needs to ask, and he asks. But he's not doing it in a self-sufficient way. In fact, the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. He was both very much trusting in God and very much planning and being responsible himself. Sometimes we think there's a contradiction. Sometimes it's like, well, do you work for your daily bread or does God give you your daily bread? Well, you know what the answer to that question is? Yes. It's both. God is the one who ultimately is the provider, but he expects you to be working as well. It's not either or. And, and, and we make a mistake when we think it's one or the other. It's not one or the other. It's both. And so, don't you start thinking, well, I'm just going to do this on my own. I don't need to pray. I don't need God's help. We absolutely do. But don't you think, well, I pray. It's not for me to do anything. I'm really impressed. Here's another example of that. And, and every once in a while, there's somebody who needs this. But I'm really impressed. In Acts 27, when they're on the ship in the storm, Paul and his companions, and uh, Paul tells them that the Lord had appeared to him and told him that they would lose no lives on that ship at all. And then a, a little while later, the sailors are about to jump in the lifeboat and get away which would leave the boat with nobody to steer it and sail it as they're getting toward land and all that. They need those sailors on board. Now, God's already told Paul, everybody's going to be saved. <clears throat> Paul could have just said, well, God told me everybody's going to be saved. I don't have to worry about it. But when he saw the sailors about to escape in the lifeboat, he told the centurion, if these guys get off the boat, we're in trouble. And the centurion just cut the ropes of the lifeboat and, and they couldn't get off. It, you know, we need that sense of both our responsibility along with God. It's a cooperative thing. Don't ever think it's all me. But don't ever, ever think, well, I pray to God, so I don't have anything I need to do. I'm just going to walk away for God to flow my daily bread down on the clock. God intends for us to be active with trust and dependence on Him, 
Nehemiah illustrates that perfectly. You have a comment or question? No. Well, it says back in chapter 1 that he had been praying and uh, fasting for a considerable amount of time. So I'm sure some of this stuff would be on his mind while he's praying. But... Of course. <laughs> he wasn't just sort of praying kind of magically. He was thinking about all that needed to be done. He planned it. He thought through it. I'm sure God, as he prayed for wisdom and so forth, has guided him to plan this out well and to think about what he needs to ask for. Yeah. Excellent. Joe, kind of what goes on in the New Testament about words and faith. Yes, exactly. We see a contradiction between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. God sees no contradiction at all. Those work together in God's plan. Other thoughts? Nine and ten. I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letter. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. The same valley the Aramites and Tabia the Ammonite officials heard about it. It was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Alright, so Nehemiah went with an armed escort from the king. That would probably give him more respect in a sense. He is going back to repair the walls. He's on king's business doing that. He's got the, the authority of the Persian emperor for that. But he comes back and what do Sandal and hello and Jobiah, uh, what do they think? <laughs> How do they feel about this? Yes. There is no work of God that goes on uh, without opposition. And uh, they don't like this. Obviously, they were in the land, and the fact that Jerusalem is going to have its walls built up is going to make it more secure, and they'd really like to just kick the Jews out. So so they are threatened by Nehemiah's presence. They don't like it, and they're going to do everything they can to stop it. Comments and questions through 210. Is this a officers of the army and the horsemen is a permanent uh, gift that he's giving to Nehemiah? My understanding would be like you know, an armed escort to Jerusalem. I'm not so sure that they stuck with him after he got there. That's possible. I don't really see any evidence. That's right, my guess. Good question. Well, I know he did this last night, but I was just wondering, did they really uh, attack the uh, we'll look at that a little later. Alright, um, so first thing Nehemiah does when he gets there, he does secret inspections at night with nobody finding out. Because he doesn't want to get the people all stirred up to rebuild the wall when he doesn't even know what he's talking about. He wants to have seen this thing, figure out what the state of disrepair is, what needs to happen. You plan something out before you get everybody all stirred up to do it. You know, you get everybody all revved up, you have no idea how to implement the, the plan. It's not going to work very well. Nehemiah is a good planner, thinker. And so first he secretly inspects the wall. Now, chapter 2, verses 17 to 20. And I said to them, you see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a, be a reproach. I told them how 
the hand of my God has been favorable to me. And also about the king's word, which, which he had spoken to me. And then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to their good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion, right or memorial in Jerusalem. Okay. You see the bad situation we're in. This is Nehemiah to the people. You know, the wall, the gates. Let's rebuild the wall so that we will no longer be a reproach. This is a disgrace to the Lord. His name is at stake. And he told them about how God has blessed this thing to this point. They've got God's uh, uh, encouragement, God's help in this. Because look at how far this has already come the king being favorable to Nehemiah's request. And so, what do the people say? Yeah, let's rise up and build. They're willing to work with Nehemiah. Nehemiah's a good leader in that. But again, the enemies, what do they do? Yeah, they try to ridicule them into quitting. You know, what's this thing you do? You're rebelling against the king. <laughs> you know, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, they just say to God of heaven will give us success. You know, we're in, we're in his servants. You don't have anything to do with this. And so they just trust in the Lord and they start building. Comments on chapter 2. Uh, yes. Uh, why, why doesn't he tell them that they have permission from the king to do this? What, what does it matter? Now, maybe he did, it's just not revealed. But what does it matter? If you've got the permission from the king, <laughs> you don't need to tell it. You don't need to defend yourself. I think what you see is Nehemiah, in some ways, practically ignores, ignores them. To stay in jaw with them is just going to delay the project. They got the king's permission, they can just go right on about his business. He's got nothing to do with it. And we know we're right. The opposition really doesn't matter. We don't have to satisfy them. Other thoughts? The way he does answer it, I think is really interesting. That, well, are you rebelling against the king? Well, the God of heaven will give us success. He brings it to a spiritual matter. He brings it to God. Which is also what Jesus did whenever they would ask him questions, trying to catch him or whatever. He'd always bring it to some spiritual sense, always giving uh, grace to God or giving praise to God. Yeah, that's exactly right. Really, the fact is, this is not even so much the King of Persia's deal. This is the Lord's deal. And if he's got God, the Lord, on his side, well, the King of Persia wouldn't even think about it, doesn't matter. There's one. Other comments or thoughts here on chapter 2. Chapter 3 is this uh, rather difficult chapter to read with all these names of the families and so forth. They'll repair different sections of the wall, kind of like y'all did last night. And what you see is that Nehemiah was very good at delegating duties. He doesn't try to do it all himself, wouldn't that have been a slow project? You know, he gets everybody involved, and many of them do it. Not every single person. Look, for example, at 3.5. Next him, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. So the Tekoites do it without their leaders. And the Tekoites do such a good job in 27, they get another section. 
After they get their section done, they do one more, even without the support of their leaders. But this tells you, you know, all about the people involved. It also shows you that God knows the individuals that are involved in his work. He knows the names of who is busy doing what he wants done. Alright? Comments and questions through chapter 3. Alright, here's where the problems really start. You know, we've already had a little hint of that. Now we'll see the opposition really rising up. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. When Zanbella heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those people Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back from back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at the side, said, What are they building? If even a fox climbed upon it, he would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder and land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall so all of it reached half its height from people work with all their hearts. So what are the opponents doing? Trash off you, that's exactly right. What's their motive in doing that? Discourage. Yeah, exactly. Discourage, demoralize. They're trying to make them give up. They're, they're trying to say, hey, it's not, you know, it's not, you're not going to make it, you're not going to do it, it's nothing, it's weak, Fox will break it down, whatever. You're trying to make them feel like, oh, this is a useless project, it's a whole lot of work anyway. We just need to quit. That's what they're trying to do. What does Nehemiah do? Praise? What does he pray for? Yeah. Does that sound like a very Christian thing to pray? <laughs> but it is. Yeah. What do you think about that? He did do a lot of that. The Psalms, we call those what kind of prayers? Imprecatory. The big word meaning first prayers. Prayers, praying for God to punish the enemies. But it sure doesn't seem right to pray like that, does it? It's a matter of loathing sin. Yeah. It's, 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 it's not loathing in so much loathing that they're his personal enemies. It's loathing that they're God's enemies and how despicable they are in sin and that they're ridiculing God. They are opposing the work of God. I think that's the point. They deserve to be punished because they are God's enemies. We need to love God so much that any enemy of the Lord we want to see punished. These, are, these men are trying to stop something that honors the Lord. So I think this was a, an appropriate prayer. I think Nehemiah does the right thing here too. You don't see him arguing back. He prays to God. And they go right on working. God will take care of it. It's not for him to wipe out so they keep building the wall. It's already halfway up. Comments and questions to verse 6. 
what you guys said about how he doesn't answer back. Maybe read that in the Proverbs. Don't answer fool according to his fault. Yes. That, maybe that's the, the <coughs> proverb of choice here. That there's no reason to answer them. There's no, what do you have to say to them? You're going to convince San Val and Tobiah it's a good thing for them to rebuild in this wall? I don't think so. You don't need to answer. You've got God's permission, God's endorsement. You've got the king's endorsement. Who cares what these, you know, rather, uh, you know, powerless enemies are saying? It doesn't really make any difference. We get too worried about what enemies of God are going to say about us. What they're going to say to us. We're intimidated because they might ridicule us. If we're with God, who cares what they say? But how much does fear of rejection stifle us in doing the work of God? It shouldn't. We're doing the work of God. There's going to be opposition. Who cares? If God be for us, who can be against us? You know that passage, Romans 8.31. Does that passage mean if God is for us, no one is against us? No, it means whoever is against us is a no one. If God's for us. Right? Alright, comments and questions further through verse 6. Well, these enemies are persistent much. 7 to 14. Now when Sanballat and Sanballat to Tobiah the Arab, the Arab, the Ammonites, and Ashdites, heard of the repair of the walls of Jerusalem, went on, and, and that the breaches began to be closed. They were very angry. All, all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem, cause a disturbance in it. But we pray to our God, and because of them we set up a guard against them day and night. That thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bears is, is failing. Yet there is much rubbish, there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to build the wall. Our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them, kill them and put a stop to the work. But the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come against us from every place where we may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and exposed places, and I stationed the people and families with their swords, spears, and bows. Uh, no. uh, yes. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your burdens, your sons and your daughters, your wives, your houses, and your houses. Well, evidently the enemy decided it's going to take more than ridicule and foxes to destroy this wall. <laughs> uh, so what are they going to decide to do? Attack! Conspire to, to battle against them! You know, this ridicule business, their actions kind of belie that. If the wall was so weak like they said, why are they so worried about it? <laughs> you know, and if a fox will break it down, then just let them build it and let the foxes destroy it or whatever. You know, if a fox could break it down, surely one of their soldiers could. You know, uh, that you always think about that. You know, what people say isn't always the way it is. Now, they come from all over. Sanballat and Tobiah, verse 7, they'd probably be Samaritans or in that area. Samaria was in what direction from Judah? North. 
and then you have the Arabs, they would be basically in one direction. South, the Ammonites would be basically in one direction. East, and the Ashdodites are from what country? The Philistines, and they'd be where? West, yeah, southwest, but west, pretty much west uh, from Judah, especially. So, they were really all around them, and they were about to fight against them. This is pretty uh, uh, unsettling, unnerving. What does Nehemiah do? Praise and prepares. You like that, don't you? Prayer and guarding. They, they know they depend on God, but trust in God is not incompatible with sensible precautions. They don't have a guard. You know, they're going to fight, and they're going to trust the Lord by prayer. But there are some problems in, in, along this line. I mean, this task is a big task. It's a big job. And, and they're starting to be discouraged. And uh, verse 10, they, they, they feel weak. There's so much to do. You know, they're just kind of starting to, to wear down some. You know, when you first start a project, you got energy. But then after a while, you kind of lose the energy, you kind of lose the enthusiasm. You're like, this is never going to happen. And then some of them, you know, report the, uh, the, the threats of the enemy ten times in uh, verse uh, 12. The Jews who lived near came and said, they're going to they're come, they're about to attack. And so what does Nehemiah set up? Yeah, the guards, which uh, will encourage the people that they're being protected. And what else does Nehemiah do? What does he say to the people? Do not be afraid because we're really strong and our guards are good. Right? What does he say? The Lord is great. He'll protect you. Trust in God. That's where our trust needs to be. We need to encourage each other. Trust in God. We're going to fight against the devil. He's strong and powerful, but God's stronger. You can do it with God's strength and help. And so that's what Nehemiah says, and that's really encouraging. Comments or questions on the rest of chat or on this or Okay, and uh, some other things happen uh, in the rest of this. And they continue being prepared to fight. Uh, I don't know that there's really much evidence that the enemies really did much. They more threatened. Our water balloons last night may have been a little uh, beyond the biblical evidence. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but they, they're, they're more a threat. They're more just talk than action, the best I can tell, but Nehemiah prepares well for that. And so they carry a spear and work, they station some of the guard and the rest of them work. They even spend the nights inside the city to economize time so they don't have to go back home. But but the thing you see in all this, with all the opposition and all they have to do to respond to it, they don't quit building that wall. They keep working on that wall. Of course the wall, the more they get it built, the more protection they have in a physical sense from their enemies. Alright, anything you want to say through chapter 4? Okay, there's another problem. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And there was now a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. 
For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore let us eat grain, that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses, that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money from the, uh, for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is of a flesh of our brethren and our children as their children. And indeed, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been brought into bought, brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and our vineyards. Okay, what's the problem here? Yeah, we got an economic crisis. Now, how does that relate to the wall construction, do you think? Yeah, we've been working on the wall, not tending the fields. And that has led to the Jews having to borrow more money to feed their families, to pay the king's taxes and all of that. And they borrow it from their fellow Jews who are charging high interest rates. And so they're frustrated and complaining, feeling overwhelmed, having to mortgage the farm, mortgage the wife and kids, whatever. And, and it's their own fellow Jews that are charging them this high interest rate, and they're out here building on the walls. This is going to be maybe a greater morale uh, problem than even the opposition threats from the uh, neighbors of, of Jerusalem. Do you understand the idea here? And this is another obstacle he's facing. Do you have a question or comment to this point? Um, verse 5, when he's talking about, you know, we are forcing our daughters and sons to be slaves, and he says that they're like their children and stuff. He's talking about the Jewish brethren who are pretty useful. Yes. I think he's saying that to pay the interest, some of them are having to even, you know, like sell their kids in slavery. Wasn't it part of the old law that you charge interest? It was. Okay. I have a question and a comment. The question is, when they refer to the famine, is that just for that they have had to neglect the fields to build a wall, and so it's not like an actual drought? Maybe, or maybe there's a drought compounding the problem. I don't know. And then my comment is, I see, I'm starting to see a lot of similarity between Ezra and Nehemiah being in a couple of different ways. First, both being very spiritual leaders for the people. Maybe that was more Ezra's primary goal, and Nehemiah's primary goal was more to to uh, help the people rebuild the wall. They're both spiritual leaders. And I, I also noticed back in the beginning of the book, as in when Ezra came, Nehemiah was very torn over his problem. It wasn't his problem. He was much better off where he was with the king, being the cupbearer, and working personally with the king, knowing the king probably in a very personal way. But yet he is so upset over the people's problems. And I think that shows just like with Ezra, very selfishness about it. Good point. So we got this problem. What are we going to do about it? Well, verse 6, Nehemiah was very angry. He consulted with himself, verse 7, and he held an assembly against the people who were doing this. He says, you're exacting usury. Each from his brother, he says, we're going to give it back. We're not going to do this anymore. He's willing to confront the leaders 
and lead them in doing the right thing. Give back their fields, give back their wife and kids, give back the money. Uh, and he demanded this of the people and they agreed. He averted the crisis not by sweeping under the rug, under the rug and pretending everybody, everything was okay, but really confronting those who were the culprits in exacting this high interest charges for the borrowing of the money. That's what happened. That's how he dealt with this. Do you have any comments or questions through 513? Jeremy, uh, Justin. Just a quick point. Uh, I don't know that we know this for sure, but it's interesting to note these are the nobles and leaders. And back in verse uh, chapter 3, um, some of the nobles and leaders weren't even working. That's an interesting thought. I hadn't connected that, but good point. Yeah. Did I get any idea when they're going to ring the bell? How long do I have? Order after, okay, great. Yeah, that's helpful. Nice to have that. Nice to know. Okay, very good. So that's where they're at right here. Is that Nehemiah gets the leaders to agree we're going to give back all this stuff, and that averts the problem. Now, Nehemiah goes ahead and in this context mentions his own personal example, which I think is a very good example. When somebody read chapter 5, verses 14 and 19. On the day that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, in the 20th year of the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, the 12 years, neither I nor my kinsmen as the governor to the land. But the former governors who were before me laid burdens on the people and took from them bread and wine besides the forty shekels of silver. Even their servants domineered the people. I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land and all my servants were gathered there to the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now that which was prepared for each day was one ox and six choice sheep, also birds were prepared, prepared for me. And once in ten days, all portions of one were furnished in abundance. Yet, for all of this, I did not demand the government of life, because the servitude was heavy on the Remember me, O God, for I, for good, according to all that I have done. There was a 12-year period here in which Nehemiah was governor, in which he had the right to tax the people for a special food allowance for himself and all the people he had in his household and staff and so forth. But during this time, Nehemiah never used that. He never actually took from the people what he had the right to take from him, from them as the governor. And you learn something about leadership in this. A leader must go farther than those he leads. A leader must make greater sacrifices than those he leads. Nehemiah had personal rights in his position that he did not use to make it easier on the people. So it's no wonder he confronted the leaders who were exacting the high interest rates and challenged them to quit doing that. Nehemiah's personal example in this is one of making sacrifices for the good of the people. Comments and questions? 
Well, we've still got the enemies, and they still don't like what's happening, and things are getting desperate for them. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Now it happened with Sunbell at Tobia, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall, and that there were no bricks left in it, so at that time I had knocked on the doors of the gates. At Sunbell at Geshem, it said to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered in the same manner. Then some bow sent the servant. Okay, good. That's good. Um, so, they changed tactics. What do they do? Yeah! Yeah, we need to have a kind of a, you know, uh, peace talks. <laughs> what do they want Nehemiah to do? Come, come down to the plains of Ono. We'll sit around and, and talk about this. <clears throat> Why did they want Nehemiah to come down there and talk about it? Do what? Yeah, not just that. It's a way to want to take the leader. Yeah, they're going to pushing him. Kind of like they were going to do with Paul over there in the book of Acts. You know, if he gets away from the walled city, then they're going to set a trap, and they're going to kill him. You kill Nehemiah, you probably stop the project. At least that's what they would think. What does Nehemiah say? Yeah, I'm too busy, can't come. And what do they say? <laughs> How often do they say it? Four times. Four times. They had high hopes for this tactic. <laughs> you know, they probably already drafted the communique. You know, we're very sorry to have to tell you there's been an unfortunate accident, and uh, you know, Mr. Nehemiah has met an untimely demise. It doesn't work because he keeps answering them the same way. You know, he refuses to be sidetracked. Sometimes the devil knows that if he tempts us over and over again with the same thing, we'll wear down and we'll finally give in. He reminds not alive to give in. And so this isn't working very well. Comments and questions? Five to nine. Open letter means what? 
anybody read it? Unsealed. Open letter saying, Nehemiah, we've, we've heard about this rumor that you're trying to rebel against the king and you want to be their king and uh, you, you appointed people to declare you king and uh, we really need to talk about this because we hate to have to tell, tell the Persian uh, monarch about this, you know. Uh, but that's the rumor that we hear going around. I wonder where that rumor came from. <laughs> And with an unsealed letter, I, I, I guess they're really trying to squelch that rumor. Aren't they? <laughs> but they pretend that we well, really need to sit down and talk about this, Nehemiah, because, uh, you know, that's, that's what we hear. <laughs> and so they're trying to kind of blackmail him and to get together with him so they can ambush him, they can, him on the way. Uh, but what does Nehemiah do? Is he just making that up? Yeah, it's wrong. And he goes, I'm working. Hey, he's not going to be distracted or deterred. Nothing's going to stop him from rebuilding the wall. They try one more tactic, 10 to 14. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delilah, or Delias, son of Menetibel, who was confined at home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you at night. But I said, should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. And I perceived that surely God had not sent him, but he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He, had, he was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin, so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Remember, O oh my God, Tobiah and Sanballat, according to these words of theirs, and also Noadiah and the, prophet, the prophetess, and the rest of the prophets who are trying to frighten you. So, what they said to Nehemiah is, they're coming to get you, you better hide out in the temple. Now, if he'd have hidden in the temple, what would that have been? Sin. He has no right to go to the temple. He's not a priest. They're trying to frighten him into sinning so that they can discredit him. And Nehemiah's wise for that. He realized, this isn't right. This isn't the counsel of a friend. Uh, Shemaiah was supposed to be his friend, but actually he'd been hired by the enemies to try to pose as a friend and seduce Nehemiah to break God's law and go to the temple to protect his own life. Nehemiah's not going to disobey God, not for anything. And he continues undeterred, and in 52 days, they get that, that wall. Rebuilt. You know, it's been 90 years since they came back from the captivity, and they get the wall rebuilt in 52 days. And I think you can see a lot of things in Nehemiah that show why God blessed him as his instrument to lead the people to do what hadn't been done. Comments and questions? Somebody tells you to do something against God, you know he's not speaking that from God. If it's against God's word, God's law. Good God, other thought. 
Thank you. 